Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Joining us in conversation today from the pod at White City Place, David Lane and Adam Saletti. David is co-founder of biannual food and culture magazine, The Gourmand, creative director of Lane & Associates Creative Agency, and, since last October, an art director with Freeze, the art fair and its associated publications. If you flip through issues of The Gourmand, you can find an interview with the Cookie Monster or a photo essay of hot dogs posing with actual dogs. Adam is the former publisher of influential magazines like The Gentlewoman and Luncheon, and is the director of Pinup Magazine's online shop. In June 2016, he helped create C'est La Vie, described as a handcrafted queer champagne. Stay tuned for an interesting anecdote about what happens when a drag queen appears in rural France. On the agenda, why food is such a common topic for the magazine thinking way, way outside the box for branding the champagne, and whether the gourmand and Salavi are part of a new era in food journalism and branding, or just part of a bigger trend. We hear first from David. Yeah, so I guess food and drink are the most universal subjects in the world. There's nothing else that everyone in the world does other than breathing, I suppose, which isn't particularly interesting content-wise. And also it's something I think that, you know, defines us culturally, who we are and and what we do and geographically and economically, but it also brings everybody together. It's It's a universal... The president of a country's favorite dish could be the same as somebody living on the street and they could have... enjoy that dish together. So it's a very unique thing food and drink in terms of communication it's it's really the purest mm. the purest form of communication mm. in a way I suppose that's a little bit what we've both done in, with, with be it publishing or branding or uh, creative direction communication is really what we're we're setting and I think that's it's the same if you're a chef or a winemaker <laughs> you're sort of selling the selling the the platform for people to communicate and um how do you feel it in in terms of also publishing which of course have has changed so much in the last 50 years but also in the last five years and in the 10 years and and with that because i remember we i think we met just around the time when you were about to launch yeah so i think you were you were at the time publishing gentlewoman Yes, and I, I think a mutual friend had said, "Oh, you should talk to Adam. You know, you're starting a magazine. He publishes a magazine. Maybe there'll be something you can." And I, I think, in in one sense, it was incredibly useful, but in the other, in the other sense, I realised that you know there are no kind of uh, secret ways of making it work (laughs) you know other than working incredibly hard and just doing doing it well um this there aren't really tricks of the trade in the same way that there used to be i think there's so many different formulas and so many different approaches now um you know every successful independent magazine has its own model yeah you know one is attached to a business one is funded by someone who's incredibly wealthy but is an interesting philanthropist one is you know about a subject 
where people still buy advertising. <laughs> you know, yeah. let's make a magazine about expensive watches. Okay, we're going to sell some advertising there, or yeah. let's make a magazine about jewelry. So I think there's lots of different ways of doing it. You know, there's the other magazines are a, almost a portfolio for companies that produce content for brands. And yeah. That's something we've done a bit of. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting landscape now, definitely. There's but even the food has gone through also such kind of tremendous evolution in terms of the cooking and in terms of the kind of the staging and the setting of it and the experiences that we all yeah. seen and, and and but then you were mentioning earlier too about you know not being driven by let's say the commercial kind of the brands or that that side which is still <laughs> let's say yet to expl be explored on on the food industry or food scene in that sense of surely you'd be approached by brands who want you to translate their interest into an editorial feature or something yeah. but still I mean we've held out protected on that. from we've definitely from held out on that and, and in exchange you know we've the alternative that we've offered is you know if you're interested in in what you do being editorialized like why don't we do that for you so we did a project with San Pellegrino last year making lots of really interesting city guides for them around the world that they could present as their own content which was you know all sorts of different things from essays about ingredients that are related to specific cities and the history of them or little food trips around cities based on films or books or all sorts of different things and actually for them I think that's so much more useful than us regurgitating a press release in the magazine about mm. new sparkling water you know yeah, yeah. everyone yeah. that reads the magazine understands that's not particularly honest and and maybe not something we're going to write about so I think being really upfront about it I mean there are lots of mainstream publications now I think that struggle with that balance mm. you know admittedly like we work in this industry so we can look at something and understand what might have gone on behind the scenes but mm. I read so many things now and all I can see is press releases mm. slightly reworded <laughs> you know and and that's necessary because how those they're they're set up and how they need to exist but it's also incredible when you experience the the sort of the difference between a market driven magazine and a readers driven magazine where you actually have all of a sudden a readership that responds and sort of spirals everything that you've been publishing compared to an industry that keeps looking after you but asking a lot in return. You know, actually selling copies, which is perhaps the hardest challenge of, of all, not just publishing and putting together an issue, yeah. but then being on the shelf and attracting uh, a reader today. And then... I mean, we're always amazed, actually. And when we first started and we did everything ourselves, you know, you're less amazed because you have personal feedback about how many you've sold or the shop that has put it in their window and sold more. Yeah. And then as soon as you start working with distributors, you're actually quite detached from the, the interaction of the, that individual buying the thing. So it takes kind of a big incident to make you realize that people still read it you know I, I, I'll get an email from someone that I met once in Oslo who's just seen a few shops in town that have it and I'm like oh wow you know that's great or in this issue we 
we took, kept back the same amount of um, copies for our online sales and they went the day that we got them. Wow. You know, yeah. we, we basically sold out of this issue online and we've done a reprint already. And, the, you know, you, you, it sort of takes you by surprise and in a way it's, it's sad you don't have that same personal connection. Like when we did issue zero and we were... I had an ironing board set up and my mum had popped round and was putting things in envelopes and like <laughs> putting a rubber stamp on the end and we were taking it down to the post office that like you're aware of the scale of what you're doing. Yeah. And then now you kind physical. of upload something to a repro house and trust distributors to uh, do the rest, which mm. is quite painful. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure as a publisher of magazines, you know that distribution's a little bit medieval and how it works yes but also when you get to scale when it becomes you know manageable of course profitable but then yeah and I suppose in the same way that, that you know there's kind of a, been a little resurgence of independent magazines and when you were publishing Gentlewoman that was one of the first examples of one of those that really took off to become its own successful brand as opposed to a kind of not necessarily a vanity project because that's not really fair on a lot of great titles but something that was a bit more humble and, and um, hobbyist and I suppose in the same way you know with Cella that's something that ha there's a space there within Champagne for something like that to happen which has happened in wine a bit with, with mm. uh, new natural wines and stuff but that must be quite exciting and maybe you can take some of the learnings from the magazine world of this big old school way of doing things that was like this is the only way we do things and yeah. then doing it differently and it being successful you know taking that to a new industry and a new a new product yeah I mean surely it's kind of it's a traditional method of, of farming and growing but then yeah I think I, can, I came into it thinking that this is completely different and I had to think you know through the the mind and the eyes of, of the farmer or the grower, Christophe, but then realizing that this is it's very close to publishing and it's very close to that tangible physical exercise yeah. of defining your you know your your culture and and sort of sharing disputing yeah. your your product. You, you told me a really good story when you went to the vineyard for the first time and you were concerned that the brand that you created wouldn't go down very well with the farmer. <laughs> I don't know if you want to say that again. No, we can share that. <laughs> so, right, yeah, Celavi, I mean, Celavi originates from Marcel Duchamp and Marcel Duchamp's transvestite alter ego, Rose Celavi. And uh, so we knew when we started the champagne label that we wanted it to be called Celavi and sort of come from that energy and that kind of background but obviously hadn't shared it yet with with Christophe the the grower and we brought our muse uh, Johnny Wu uh, who's a legendary East London drag queen star with us to to the farm to make some footage and make some videos and uh, and yeah Johnny turned up in double denim and as Johnny and we were chatting around and then imagining sort of like preparing. a 70s Wrangler advert a little bit right? we all kind of yeah waiting for this moment of Johnny going to 
to get changed and come back in high heels and, and full drag. And and Hervé, uh, my business partner, was sort of preparing Christophe a little bit and feeling if this would be all right, or if it would be kind of an insult to, to the process and to the grapes and to to, to the whole kind of winemaking. And, uh, and Johnny comes out and, and Christophe looks at Johnny and goes, oh, but I do the same. <laughs> and so, so yeah, Christophe is a cross-dresser farmer, a cross-dressing farmer in Bonnell, <laughs> in Champagne, France. And, uh, and since then, it's been this marriage of, you know, passion and, yeah, and love for kind the, of for high the heels pressing, pressing grapes and There's been some high heels in the, in, <laughs> in the tank, <laughs> pressing and stomping. Uh, and now we've also been introducing, as I was saying to you, I just came back from, from Champagne where we've been shooting some more you know, videos to sort of complete the the consolation or the storytelling of, of the whole family, of being this new, let's say, 21st century Champagne family. With On the bottle, a new sticker I've noticed, which is uh, by appointment to the Queen of Champagne. Yeah. So she's the Queen and, and, and we have a couple of Queens uh, in our family and we all get dressed up and... But it's, the, it sort of seems to be face. more, you know, the kind of outgoing enjoyment of that world seems to be more fitting to champagne than a kind of top button done up tie suited old school chateau. Yeah. You know, that almost seems a bit pretense, you know, to, to kind of pretend that we're not having fun drinking champagne. Yeah, I would say that's more of a dark, heavy red wine or something. Yeah, exactly. Like an old like, house that's all sophisticated and a bit dry. And we all know that they're, they're sort of that aristocratic hedonism is like, it's quite fun when you get past that pretense. Like a lot of that is the people that really know how to party. But yeah. <laughs> to, to not be open about that seems to be uh, like almost hiding behind something. And it's nice that there's... A champagne that just says like this is what you drink when you're going out and having fun. Yeah, but well, we were providing bottles. We were supplying bottles to this party, at this beautiful palazzetto in Venice for the opening of the the Venice or the Venice Biennale. And and Johnny was there as the queen of Salavi, um, and 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 it just becomes so clear that this is the city for for champagne, right? It's all about masks and kind of grand dressing up events and uh, and as instructed me before I've always been there for, for the art and it's all kind of quite sophisticated and of course late at night it gets fun but then um, it was now coming in the kind of in the form of of and champagne that I realised like oh my god You're listening to Thought Starters with art director and co-founder of the Gourmand David Lane and the co-owner of C'est La Vie Champagne and former publisher of Luncheon Magazine, Adam Saletti. A feature in the current issue of the magazine, which is about, it's a visit to the world's only truffle dog university. And it's in northern Italy, and it's a university where they train truffle dogs. Oh, yeah. And an Italian photographer we know, Paolo Di Licenti, went there and, and documented it for the day. 
I'm not 100 percent sure, but let me just find. So we're, where are we? Page 100. It's. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful, the area and the places. But so established in the village of Rodi, the Lang region of Piedmont, Italy. It's the only institution of its kind. Over a century later, the founder's great grandson runs things, honing the truffle hunting skills of talented dogs. So the best dogs are so valued in Italy that there have been cases of them being poisoned by jealous rivals or kidnapped for ransom. And there's a picture of an incredibly sweet little innocent dog. But it's an amazing thing. A a friend of... uh, We go to Italy every year and stay with a friend whose father has a house there and he's a relatively successful director of photography, the father. And uh, he bought some truffles at the market out the back of a, a car from the lady who's the sort of local truffle seller and considered quite seriously for a while just giving up on the DOP and, oh, yeah. and just importing truffles back to England yeah <laughs> and there's actually a guy we met that we tried to do a piece with who is this really fascinating character he was a publisher in Italy back in the day and now he imports truffles for private clients in London and sells them and the whole world is wow. sort of very you know it sits somewhere between kind of I don't know maybe wine and drugs it's this right. kind of underground semi black market yeah like he'll turn up <laughs> at a restaurant with a, a little handkerchief and open it up and inside will be some truffles oh, but yeah. there's not really a mainstream way of getting the best truffles right things like that and there's no such thing as organic or natural. No, but the, you can't farm them. I mean, natural. I mean, you literally you, just, you can't. You need you need the dog to find them, or the pig in France, or yeah. Um, I'm sure people are trying to find ways to do it. Yeah, you know, like mescal or something. Like you, you can't really farm these products that make make the best stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I love things. I love things like story. that. Yeah. I suppose both. Both Selavi and the Gourmand maybe represent a bit of a new interest or new appreciation in, in, in food, which isn't, isn't new in the sense that there ha- you know, things like this haven't existed before. I mean, the slow food movement's been going on for years and Cookie Monster definitely doesn't represent the <laughs> slow food movement. But, but I think they represent a kind of a wider spectrum and like an opening up of food and drink from something which especially in, in the west has been a bit more mainstream or or been a bit more underground and never really had this kind of middle ground um and i guess it's interesting to think whether this is something which is a bit a bit of a zeitgeist you know mm. the independent magazine and the, the sort of natural wine is this something that just fits in with everything else that's happening mm. of a now or yeah. is or is this a, a kind of return to an appreciation of the better things in life and like a younger generation that maybe can't afford some of the things that our parents could you know this is some some things we can afford and enjoy yeah well, I think as much as the food and drinks scene or industry, let's say, is expanding or getting gaining more momentum or interest, it becomes more and more diverse. And it felt for a while that it was all about the presentation 
and and sort of gone you know it probably an extreme of of that still exists but it feels like been broken up into different subcategories and mm. sub interest and 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 thank god that we have natural wine and food slow food and 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 these different kind of ways of experiencing and ways of expressing where it's not all the conventional kind of taste and flavors so as i say it's always been around but now i think it's almost if to me it's the same feeling of what the 70s sort of started in terms of a revolution it's kind of now been given kind of a a bigger yeah and yeah maybe i don't like the word platform but it is a platform to to sort of build on and to expand on and to uh to share on and i suppose like the harder we all have to work and and the trickier things get as a as a generation you know when you sit down for dinner or when you sit down on the sofa to read a magazine like there are very few moments like that that are really indulgent pleasure and you know i'm not sure maybe 10 years ago the equivalent would have been going to a rave and taking loads of drugs and maybe that's still happening but you know for, for a slightly older generation like you come home and you want to have a nice conversation and eat some good food and have a glass of wine that's kind of really the, the hour or two of your day that's for you yeah you yeah know? and why would you compromise on that yeah you know so you should have the nicest champagne that has an interesting story behind it you should have a good magazine that people have thought about yeah in this kind of also in, in this kind of climate of over-informed and over-stimulated. Kind of I, I think, yeah, we, we need more stories. We, we or not need, but we, we seem to be craving the stories and we seem to be craving the, the flavors and the tastes. And, and I have to say, on, on, the, on the note of before they went to rave and took a lot of drugs, last weekend we provided bottles to one of the biggest parties in, in, in London, a party for 15,000 people, where... As I previously, it would have been a lot of water <laughs> supplied to, to to the party, and and now it's all down to very kind of crafted local um, artisan products. Where we got approached from having this champagne and uh, next to you know the local kind of beer yeah. and 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 all these other kind of local food suppliers and and things, and and even myself, I was quite surprised that. That's yeah. the kind of priority for the raver today. Uh, yeah, to actually have a good drink in, in, in you know, at hand. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and a luxury tent to return of, to. Obviously, you know, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was quite fascinating. And well, that's, I mean, that's definitely the kind of raving that I prefer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you kind of think back about slumming it out, and and now the, the little bits of your time that you have for yourself, it's like can listen to some great music and yeah. give me a, a glass of wine <laughs> a glass of wine <laughs> a sunny day and a nice sofa and it was a, and a day good rave. yeah you know, it's like all all happening in daylight and people want to sit in the grass have great music but it has to be good food and drinks yeah so maybe maybe it's something that's just starting and 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 it's kind of in front of us rather than something that felt of the past, you know. Well, let's hope so.
That was art director and co-founder of The Gourmand, David Lane, and the co-owner of C'est La Vie Champagne and former publisher of Luncheon Magazine, Adam Saletti. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a DN Co. project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded by Antonio Fernandez, and edited by Claire Crofton. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, Acast, and Stitcher. Give us a rating and write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time.